0: Mark six thirty-three to 44. But many people recognized them and saw them living. And people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and the villages to buy something to eat. But Jesus said, You feed them. With what? they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have? He asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took five loaves of, and uh, five loaves and two fish, looked up towards heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all asked as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. The words of Lord.
1: Thank you, Jesse. Jesse and his wife, Lily, and their three boys, Samuel, Joshua, and David. Good biblical names. Um moved from Taiwan uh, a little over a year ago, and uh, glad to have you and your family here. And, you know, just a, a small picture of really the diversity of people in our congregation. And, and there's a, a, a cool story. I wasn't planning to share this, but I will now that I've started. Um, one Sunday, uh, and, and I, I just—this sort of blows my mind a little bit, but Lily, his wife, was sitting somewhere back there, and was talking to one of their children in Mandarin, right? That's your your native language. And somebody sitting next to them who also speaks Mandarin, but also understands that it's a dialect from Taiwan, and says, hey, are you from Taiwan? And then they make this connection. And then they're having brunch together. Uh, They'd met for the first time. And um, somebody who had actually gone home um, forgot their coffee mug and decided to come back finds his coffee mug at their table and they start talking and they're from Taiwan and so on one Sunday morning three couples all from Taiwan connect um, over brunch through that conversation. And, it, you know, I love the stories like that because I, it happens week after week after week. So, friends, God, I just encourage you right off the top, when we go to brunch later on, keep your eyes and ears open and look for people that are that are new, that, that you haven't met before, um, because you have no idea what God might have in store for you and the people that you might connect with uh, this morning as well. But it is good to be other, together, and it's going to be fun to look at this passage that Jesse read read for us. And and I was thinking, when we come to a, a story like this in the scriptures, it makes us think a little bit about, um, like, how, how do I approach this? Um, it's it's for those of you who've been in the church and you've you're familiar with the word. This is a familiar passage probably to you. It's one of those kind of Sunday school passages that we go through. And for some of you, this might be brand new. And so, how do we look at this? And and one of the things I discovered that when we look at Scripture, there's a lot of times there's different perspectives that we bring, and we can look at it from these different perspectives. Perspective is kind of a an interesting thing, right? It's a it's a point of view. It's a way of looking at something. So in just a second, I'm going to throw up a, a picture on the screen, and I want you to, to just take a quick look at it, and, and then I want to ask you uh, a couple of questions. Just tell me, get the first thing that you see in mind, okay? So Karen, put this picture up. I don't know, I hope this works. Some of you have probably seen this before. Okay, how many of you see a young lady? How many of you see an older lady? How many of you see both? Okay, right. It's kind of a cool picture. You can see the uh, the, the young lady is actually looking backwards, and it's kind of a side view, and you see her ear and kind of her neck with a necklace. But if you turn it from another perspective, if you haven't already seen this, um, that necklace has now become the mouth of an older lady whose ear of the young lady is now her eye. And so if you didn't see both, now hopefully you do, you do see both. Um, but we do see these things from different points of view, and we have a different perspective. And so today, when we look at this passage in in, uh, Mark's gospel that Jesse read for us, we're going to look at it from four different uh, perspectives. Now, just a couple of words about this particular um, event in the life of Jesus. All four gospels record uh, this particular miracle. And that's significant in the sense that, for one, it shows how important it is because all of them felt like we need to get this down on paper and make sure that that uh, this is passed along. And uh, Jesus, uh, that God through the Holy Spirit empowered the writers to write this and record this, so it's important. And we would we would be, um, uh, be it would be good for us to to think about how important it is for us to to read that. The only other miracle that all four Gospels then have also is, of course, the resurrection. And so it's a good reminder for us. The very end of uh, the reading in verse 44, uh, we read that the number of men was 5,000. And and so uh, the number of people fed was likely much larger than that. Of course, you can't get an exact science to that, but some of the men would have been there with, with their wives, and some of their husbands and wives would have been there with their 2.2 kids or whatever the, the, the number was at that time. And so there could have been 7, 8, maybe 10,000 people at this gathering. Um, so it's an, an incredible amount of people. We can kind of picture, you know, Rogers' place half full Um, It's a lot of people. And what makes this so miraculous is that we understand that he fed these people with what? Five loaves of fish. Sorry, five loaves of bread and and two fish. And so when we think of this huge number of people being fed with so little, right away there's this sense of um, maybe questioning the miraculous there. And... um, And that happens today, right? Something miraculous happens, and we find ways to rationalize it or explain it away. And and, and so some people have looked at this, and they've come up with all sorts of of different reasons, and they said, well, you know what? What happened was is Jesus, you know, the disciples then just kind of shared their meals, and other people saw that they were inspired, or maybe they even were were shamed into it, and they all started bringing out their lunches, and and they just kind of shared. It was like this spontaneous potluck took, took place, and then everybody fed so the question to that, though, that I have is that, well, if they had food, then there wouldn't have been a need. There wouldn't have been a need for the miracle in the first place. Others might say that, you know, well, Jesus had some secret stash of food. Now that's a lot of food to stash away. Others would maybe say that this was kind of like a sacramental meal. It was sort of symbolic and, and kind of like, you know, communion when you get that little piece of bread. And, and so they took this bread and they just had these little tiny morsels. And, and, and so then everybody got some of that. And um and yet to that I say that it's very clear that at the end that that it says that everyone ate and was satisfied. They're full, and we'll come we'll come back to that. And so I want to just say this up front, because I think it's important for us to just place ourselves there, because whatever else we might say about this particular uh, uh scene in the life of Jesus and his disciples, it is a miracle. Because that's what it's about. And, and John, in his gospel, he refers to this as a miraculous sign. And, and let me remind you, too, that um, this wasn't just Mark writing down things that he had randomly heard from a bunch of different people. Mark's primary reporter, his eyewitness account, was Peter, one of the disciples, who would have been front and center and had seen all of this. And I can, again, I, I just imagine this conversation all the time taking place where Peter's going, you know, you might want to write this down. Because this, this was absolutely incredible. This was miraculous. And so he starts telling the story. And, and, and when it was written down, there were other people that were present there that would have heard about this. And if it wasn't true, they would have said, you know what, Peter, you're exaggerating. It didn't really happen that way. But it didn't. And it survived. And it's living, God says that His Word is living and active and we can take it for, for, for it at face value here this morning. It comes from an eyewitness report. Well, last week, Pastor Adam reminded us that as followers of Jesus, we are on mission. And so when we look at chapter 6 in its entirety, that in uh, the early part of chapter 6, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. The apostle is one who is sent. He's a messenger, a, a missionary, if you will. And in verse 30, we discover that they've all returned, and they're telling Jesus now about what happened. And what happened is also recorded for us. It's that the disciples went out and they preached that people should repent. And so they had the same message of repent and believe in Jesus. They drove out many demons. They they anointed many sick people with oil and they, they healed them. And so, you know, the disciples did the very things that Jesus did. And so now they've gathered together and they're talking about their experiences because they had gone out two by two. And, and so again, that would have been just a fun conversation to listen into, don't you think? And, and all of a sudden, people start to gather around because they want to hear all of what's gone on and what God has done, done in the area. And so these large crowds gather and, and the um, text says that they didn't even eat. And um, this has happened once before and it was the occasion then where where Jesus' family decided that he's gone crazy because he's allowed the, the crowds to um, distract him from filling some of his very basic needs. And so um, these crowds are around, they're not eating, and Jesus goes, you know, they've been they've been busy. They've been active, they've been out, and he recognizes that in their humanity, they they did need a break from all of the pressures of being on mission. And so Jesus pulls them away, and he he wants to get them to a quiet place, to give them some rest. And the only way that they can get away from these crowds is to get in a boat and set sail for kind of the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're going to go for some R&R. what I want us to do is, I hope that as we look at Scripture like this, that we can kind of place ourselves in the scene, and then we're going to look at it from these four perspectives that I talk about. So let's look a little bit more in detail at what's happening. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along, but let me just kind of take us back to that moment where Jesus and his disciples, they've now intended to go, and they want to find a deserted place or a lonely place or a remote place where nobody's going to be. That's what they're looking for. But they're, excuse me, disappointed in their search for privacy, because while they had taken a boat uh, straight across the Sea of Galilee, the crowd followed them, and they ran around the edge of the lake. Excuse me, I got to, you don't want me to sound all raspy like a country singer or something. Not that they're all raspy. Um... And so, um, straight across would have been about four miles to sail, but running around the edge of the Lake would have been, been about eight miles. And so, people—you can just sort of imagine this, right? People are, are running out of their house because they were at the—they they saw the boat go, and they're like. We're going to follow, but we got to go around on dry land. And so they go around on dry land, and as they're running, other people are going, hey, what's going on? They're coming out of their house. They hear this commotion, and they're like, well, Jesus. Jesus and his disciples are around. We just want to go, go hear what he has to say. And so more people gather in, and this crowd just ever increases until they get to the other side, and they're already there waiting when Jesus and the disciples land on shore with the boat. I wonder how the disciples felt at that moment. Maybe you can identify, you know, you've been going hard and you just want some peace and some quiet and you, you think that by getting in a boat and setting sail that you can leave kind of your troubles behind and the crowds behind. And, but instead they get to the other side and there's this large welcoming committee in the middle of nowhere that had run around the lake and arrived there ahead of them. I wonder if maybe they felt a little put out, maybe even a little measure of, of resentment They've been going hard. They've been going steady. Now they see this break that they're looking forward to it, and now it's gone. But Jesus doesn't show any of that kind of irritation. If anything, it says very clear that he, he feels compassion, and he shows compassion on the people there, of course, and he welcomes them, and then he uses this as an opportunity to continue to teach and preach about the kingdom and heal those who needed healing. Now, we don't know what time of day this uh, started because obviously then Jesus takes some time and he's teaching. But we do know that it eventually gets later in the day and, it, and the text just says it's now late in the day. The day is drawing to a close. It's almost evening and they're approaching supper time. And the disciples, they start thinking logically. It's getting late. It's soon going to be dark. We're in the middle of nowhere. People are getting hungry. We're hungry. We should just call it a day. And so they come up with an idea, and they go to Jesus, and they share this idea with him, and it says this. It says, send the people away. That was their idea. Great idea, isn't it? Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, it makes perfect sense, right? It's a logical conclusion. That's probably, I think, what I would do. I would see this massive group of people and everybody's kind of getting a little little antsy. They're a little hungry and I would just probably send them home. Besides, we all like a little R&R, don't we? Now, this is a lonely place. There's no food. There's no Tim Hortons nearby. And so they think that they should just send people off, get into the surrounding villages there if they actually want to eat something. When I look at this, I think, you know, the disciples decided that the problem that they faced was one worth sending away. Make that somebody else's concern. Somebody else can take care of them. So go on, Jesus. Just send them on their merry way because we want to eat. We want some time to ourselves. We want some time with you. Jesus looks at them and says, you. You. He's emphatic. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. What's that Jesus? Come again? Well, you feed them. And that must have come as a surprise to them, because Jesus here puts the responsibility back on them. You give them what they need. Can you imagine kind of how that went over? They're already feeling irritated and some resentment. And, and they're like, what? Rolling their eyes? <laughs> sure, Jesus, we feed them. Good one. So the disciples, they start thinking logistics. They begin to wonder how they would ever feed this crowd of 5,000 men and however many women and children were there as well. And they start to do the math. And they go, you know, that would take more than half a year's wages. That's a lot of money. We said... We're going to feed that crowd. We need more than half a year's salary. And you want us just to go out and spend that all on one shot on some bread? I guess it's an option, but at least from their perspective, it wasn't a very good option. But the conclusion that they ultimately come to is this. That they've got this massive amount of people, and they have no food and no money. It's impossible. It's just too much. What are we ever going to do about that? Friends, let me remind you again this morning that Jesus specializes in the impossible. So he asks them, he says, you know, go and see how many loaves of bread you can find. What do you have? Five, two fish. What's the point? it's impossible. It's impossible. And so the whole point of it is Jesus is, is drawing this, this conclusion that these things are such, there's such an extreme need and so little to provide for it that we can make absolutely no mistake that we in and of ourselves cannot meet that need. John's Gospel adds the detail that this was a boy that provided the the bread and the fish. And in that day, that was just a pretty basic meal It's Standard fare, maybe a little bit like rice in many developing countries today. But I'm thinking the disciples are still not on board. They're starting to whine a little bit. I think there's even some disrespect that you can read into this. They obviously still have no clue that Jesus has supernatural power to provide and supply everything that they needed. And I really think that they were hoping that they could convince Jesus to reconsider because clearly the five loaves of bread and the two fish wasn't going to be enough to feed this massive crowd. It wasn't even enough for them. But friends, we sang about it this morning. Christ is more than enough. And so Jesus, he directs them to get the people to sit into groups of hundreds and fifties mark adds this detail that it was green grass so there's this vivid picture that we see and that just would place it probably in the late springtime after spring rains and so there's lots of life here but then we come to the point where jesus takes those five loaves of bread and two fish he looks up to heaven as a kind of symbolic way of looking to god the father And he gives thanks to God, not for what they don't have, but for what they do have. And he breaks the bread and he hands it to the disciples to distribute to the crowd. And he does the same with the fish. We know where this is going, right? Because something absolutely miraculous takes place. Because Mark records Peter saying to him, they... All ate and were satisfied. Just think. Just let that... They, all of the people, thousands upon thousands of people, they ate and they were satisfied. In other words, they had had enough. They had their fill. And they started with hardly anything. And they ended up with more than enough, in fact. Because when everyone had had their meal, they gathered up the fish and the, the leftover bread and they collected 12 basketfuls of broken pieces. Probably the crust, because one likes the crust or the end pieces. I was forced to eat an end piece of toast this morning. It was awful. Now, there's no details about how that actually took place. Because that's not what's important. What's important is the provision. The fact that they all ate and were satisfied. So let's look at this. How, what are the different perspectives we can look We look at this from the perspective of the crowd, okay? So imagine that you're one of those that had heard this commotion taking place. You saw people running past your home. And so you too, you just kind of think, well, something's going on. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like when there's an accident on the side of the road, everybody rubbernecks and they want to see what's going on. And so there's this curiosity that takes place and everybody wants to go. And you just leave your house quickly. You don't think about how long you're going to be gone. You don't take anything to eat with you. And now you're finding yourself you know, five, six, seven, eight miles from home, and in this remote place, but you're listening to Jesus talking, he's preaching. You're listening intently to what he's saying, and you're both encouraged, but you're also convicted because you hear this message of repentance. You're wondering, what do I need to repent from? But you also start to feel your tummy <laughs> start to rumble a little bit, and you realize that you're getting hungry, and You know, your stomach growls so loudly that you kind of look around a little bit, wondering if anybody else heard it. Then you hear others' stomachs growling, and you look into the eyes of the person next to you with that, that smirk. You know the look that you give somebody when you know exactly what they're feeling and kind of what's going on? And then you look and you notice the disciples are getting a little more active and they're, they're talking with a little boy up at the front, but you can't really hear what's going on and you're wondering, is he in trouble or is he in need or is he lost? And he, he's separated from his parents and you start to wonder about what might be going on. Now Jesus has stopped teaching and he's engaging with his disciples. And the next thing you know, they come along and they're saying, okay, we want to count off people in groups of 50 and 100. And then... All of a sudden, a basket of bread comes along, and you're like, oh, I did have a need. I was hungry. You break off a chunk, and close behind that comes some fish, and you take some fish, and you make a fish sandwich, and you eat it, and you're like, hey, I'm satisfied, I'm satisfied. You're not even sure what is really going on. Now, there's not a whole lot of amazement here. Have you noticed that? Like, like a lot of the other times when Jesus did miracles, there was this response of amazement and wonder and awe. But, but you're not really sure all of what's going on. You just know that in that moment, your need has been met, and you discover that Jesus can meet your most basic needs. And you learn that you can trust him to be your provider, and that he can provide for you in miraculous ways if necessary. And if you're a person in the crowd today, I just wonder, what is your need today? What is it that you need to trust Jesus for? Is it for food? Is it for shelter? Is it for clothing? These are some some basic needs. Employment is huge. You trust Him in that. But maybe your real need is, is a spiritual need. It's that you need to be able to push a giant reset button. You need a do-over. You, you look at your past and you, you live with the regrets of the things that could have been or should have been and haven't been. The things that you've done and you think about your past and, and today you're just, you're hopeless. And Jesus can meet that need. He offers forgiveness. And He says to you, He says, just Repent turn to me, believe, trust in me. Well, we can also look at this from the perspective of the disciples. I mean, we can look at the scene through the eyes of the disciples. They had a front row seat. They found the boy with the five loaves and the two fish, and you saw Jesus take it and pray and you watch that the baskets were handed through the crowd and the food just kept multiplying jesus had sent you out two by two to go on mission and to do ministry and this miracle powerfully drives home the truth that successful ministry depends on jesus to provide for us and on our ability to rely on him As disciples, we must be totally dependent on God. This is what Pastor Adam reminded us last week, that when we're on mission, he sends us out with nothing so that we should depend on him. And so we do what we can, but we trust him for the results. We trust him to provide what we need. And so his call to serve and to provide for others out of compassion demands that we think not of ourselves, but that we how we can help others. And it flies in the face of how we normally operate, because providing for ourself becomes the first priority. And that's true as a church as well, because when we become concerned first with meeting only our own needs, then we're no different from the disciples here. So friends, we need to rely on God, and that's why, that's why we gather to pray, because it's an expression of our dependence on God. And so the key word for the disciples here in this passage is dependence. That when we go on mission, when we do ministry through him and for him, and here's the wonder of this perspective, we need to see that we can accomplish things that we never even dreamed of doing as long as we depend on God. Because he provides. Now over the years in ministry, there's two killer phrases that I've heard and I'm just like, no, shut it down right there. And one is, we've never done that before. You heard that before? We've never done that before. And so what, what, what this message is, is that, that great ideas get squashed because of the way things have traditionally been done. Oh, that's so out of the box. We've never done that before. That's one of the things I love about TCC is that, you know, we're a young church, relatively young church, just 17 years old. And in the early days, and I think we still have this kind of spirit of exper- experimentation, it's kind of like, we, we don't know if this is going to work or not, but let's try it. And that's really the birth of Conversation Cafes. We see this need of people just needing to engage in in speaking English. So let's try it. The second phrase is that we could never do that. Because something appears appears impossible because of practical reasons. And We think, well, we don't have enough money to do that. We don't have enough volunteers. We don't have enough leaders. We could just never do that. And so we don't depend on God. And again, I say it's one of the things I love about TCC. And we use a phrase here, you've heard it up here many times, from Pastor Ken, from me, from all of us. We talk about this. And let's never lose sight of this. Only God. Only God. Right? Because when I look out this morning, this isn't about me or the staff or anybody. This is about what God is stirring in our community and in our church. And and if you don't know the history, and sometimes we lose sight of the history, but there were 11 people that gathered for about 9 to 12 months that just prayed, but God, where should we start a new church? And it was here. And and I just, even yesterday, Bob and Valteski, Valteski is one of those original 11 and she says to me, and she's sitting right back there, she looked around every Sunday morning and just going, this is unbelievable. And Rudy and Brenda and Bob and Beth, Sid and Faith. Those are four, eight of the of the 11 people, Pastor Ken and Marg, who are at Southwest now. They're the ones that had just came to God and prayed and trusted God. And they look around on a Sunday morning. You know what? Can you, I think Bob's probably in the kitchen, <laughs> But can you, those of you who are part of that eleven, can you just stand for a second? Let's acknowledge their faithfulness and their vision for this. Just remain standing. Just remain standing. I want to try something. I had an idea, and this is maybe oh, I'm way over time. Sorry, guys. Um, if you started attending TCC when we were meeting in Holy Trinity Church, can you stand? Okay, a few more. How many of you started attending when we were meeting for three years at Taylor University College? Can you stand? That's, can you just look around a little bit? Just try, like, there's maybe, what, 50, 60 of you? There's 300 plus people here this morning, all who've started to come since this group of people trusted God to buy this piece of land and build this building. Friends, that's only God. That's a miraculous provision. You may be seated. Thank you. Now we've planted a church, and they're going to continue to need our support. Friends, when we see that, I hope that there's no mistaking where the miracle comes from. That's what I love about TCC. Because we should always ask, how can we meet the needs of our community? And that's what they did. That's what we'll continue to do. You heard about it this morning. But you know what it is? It's that Jesus, God, wants to use us. He wants to use us. To make a difference in this community. And so he looks us as as his disciples in the eye and says, you give them something to eat. And so do we depend on him. That's the perspective of the disciples. How about the perspective of the boy? Here he is. His lunch wasn't much. Not compared to what was needed. He probably wrestled kind of with the silliness of it all. Is it really, is it really worth it? Should I sacrifice what little I have? Will it even make a difference? But when we take what little we have and we give it to Jesus, it's amazing what he can do with it, isn't it? And this isn't a message about, about giving, but I think it's just important for us to be reminded about what the Bible does teach about giving. It talks about the tithe or ten percent of, of our income to be a good starting point as we start thinking about what should we give. But the New Testament takes that and kind of turns it on our heads a little bit and says, it's not a, a set number, it's it's out of a spirit of generosity and out of out of sacrifice. So the way we need to look at it is not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. And in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul does this great teaching about giving, and it's a message all of itself, but I think it's simply this, is that there's simple principles that come from this. One is that we give according to our means, Right? We look at out uh, there's this diversity of people here. We're all in different places in our lives, different places financially, different stages of life. Some are coming here and they're just forging new ground. We have many new immigrants at our church that have come in the last year or two, or even more recently. Meet them at brunch, hear their stories. It's unbelievable. But we're all at different places, and so we give according to our means. We give generously, which means it should hurt a little bit that there is sacrifice involved. C.S. Lewis once said this, he says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the same standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. Thirdly, we give as a response to the gospel. Because giving should never be based on need or an obligation, or even as a way to have joy. Although those can be part of a motivation to give, but the ultimate motivation is to give based on what Jesus has given us and what He's done for us. Friends, I'm just going to be bold. to You, I've I've been to a number of like um, fundraising dinners and silent auctions, and they and they make they make it very clear that you're there because there's a need, and they want to meet that need, and so. We as a congregation, we're trusting God to meet our needs. And we have a God-sized goal at TCC. In total, it's it's an annual budget of over a million dollars, which is huge. And we're behind. So I'm just going to put that there. Pray about it and consider what your part's going to be between now and the year end. Forgiving is not limited to money. We need to think about giving not just in respects to our treasure, but also into our talents. How are we involved? Our gifts? Are we involved? Is this part of our community? Are we engaged in that way? And then time as well. You see, God can use everything that we're willing to give. And so like the little boy in the crowd of thousands, I ask again, do we, have what we, do we bring what we have to Jesus? And lastly, when we look at this miracle through the eyes of Jesus, there are several themes at surface. You could look at He's a God of order. I, I, I personally like that. If you know a little bit about me, you know the 50s and the 100s, I thought that was really a great way of kind of meet, meeting this need in a, in a really uh, organized and responsible way. But He's a God of provision, and He acknowledges that provision of the Father, and He gives thanks to what, for what they do have. It's just a simple reminder to us that when we sit down for a meal, we should always express thanks for the provision of it, never take it for granted. We see his control over creation here, his ability to make provision for life. We see his grace in action. But the one thing that really stands out for me is his compassion. Because he's a God of compassion. From the moment that he lands on shore, the text says that he had compassion on them. Why? because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus sees these people as shepherdless sheep, defenseless, lost, unable to fend for themselves, and he's compelled to do something about it. And so when the disciples wanted Jesus to send the crowds away, Jesus saw it as an opportunity to act on the compassion that he felt, and so he provided supper for the massive crowd. And there's so many connections that I could make here. It, it, the, 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 the connections to the, the, the provision of manna in the desert for the, for the Israelites in Exodus 16. It, it, there's imagery here of, of the good shepherd in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. This, this posture of trust. When, you, when, I, when I talked about how Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it. When else do we see that happening? Last Supper. Jesus symbolically used bread to show us what he was willing to sacrifice for us. He said, this bread is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He still compassionately cares for those who come to him. And the same compassion that Jesus had toward the crowd on that day, he has towards you and towards me, and he knows our greatest needs. And he just invites us into a relationship to trust him. So we take away from this that Jesus both satisfies our needs and then he sends us out to meet the needs of others so just to summarize do we trust him to provide do we depend on him when we go on mission do we bring what we have to jesus and do we know him to completely satisfy us and what's interesting to me and maybe even a little ironic is that the disciples actually missed a lot of what was going on here because in Mark chapter 8, two chapters later, you're going to read about Jesus again feeding another large crowd. It was only 4,000, so it wasn't a big deal. But they also had women and, and children. I'm sarcastic about that. But again, you read that text, and Jesus expresses that he has compassion on them. He never loses that. They're hungry, they're needy. And again, the disciples said to him, get this, they said... But where in this remote place can anyone get enough to feed them? They missed it. I don't know the timeline. I didn't look at it, in that details it weeks. Is it months later that he does this again? And they don't remember what he did. Friends, don't miss the miracle. Don't miss the miracles that happen every day in your lives. Know that God is there and He cares and He wants to meet those needs. Let's pray. Father, help us to know that You are more than enough. We may not even know what that fully means. So I just ask that through your spirit you would bring us to that place where we truly know that you're more than enough. You can satisfy our needs, our needs for companionship, our needs for a relationship. And you look on us At times, those shepherdless ones who are lost, don't know where the next meal is coming from. Father, just draw our eyes to Jesus today. May we know that he can fully satisfy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.